Well, what a joy it is for me to be at Edgewood Baptist Church this morning. And Pastor Brian, I want to thank you for your gracious invitation and for allowing me to be a part of the ordination council yesterday, the service this afternoon, and then to be able to preach here today. I was kind of laughing to myself as you were talking about Pastor Ed starting Awana here 42 years ago. It brought back a memory. Over 40 years ago, I was a new youth pastor in Georgia, and my uh, senior pastor brought me into his office, and he said, what do you know about Awana? I said, well, I've got a file on it from seminary. (laughs) He said, well, you're the new Awana commander. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to play golf with Art Rohrheim, the founder of Awana. He was about 88 years of age at that time. We were warming up on the putting green, and I looked over, and he was talking to someone. Well, he had just arrived. Art had just arrived in town. I knew he didn't know anybody there, and I went to his associate, associate and I said, uh, what is Art doing? How, does he know that guy? He said, no, he, Art's just over there witnessing to him. And you know, that's the thing about Awana. Uh, They want boys and girls to know Jesus as Savior and then train them to serve Him. So moms and dads, grandparents, get your kids in Awana. I want to plug something else. I want to tell you about the ordination service this afternoon. Uh, That's a historic moment in the life of a church. And one day when the history of this church is written, one of the things that will be included are the names of those called to ministry out of this church, those that are serving here. And so you'll want to be a part of that this afternoon at 3 p.m. I also just want to say what a privilege it is to be here. We have so many connections with this church. Our youth groups have gone to Belize and Central America together. They've gone to Canada together. They've even met halfway for a youth retreat in Kentucky. Justin Justin Rumley, who is being ordained today, has served as an intern in our church uh, in Alabama as well. It's also good to be back in Illinois. Nine generations of my family have at some point in their life lived in the state of Illinois. And then my wife was born in the Quad Cities and her first home was right here in in, uh, the Moline area in Rock Island as well. At our church, I always preach a a summer sermon series. And this summer, I chose the book, the Old Testament book of Job. And so I've been living in Or maybe I should say I've been eating and drinking and breathing the book of Job for three months now. And one of the things I've been reminded of is that so many people are hurting. And I've talked to so many and heard from so many that are struggling and they just need hope. Now also as I've gotten into the book of Job, I've been reminded that Job is a difficult book. It's a difficult book for a lot of reasons, but one reason would be this. It's, it's mostly poetry. About 95% of the book is old Hebrew style poetry. Divinely inspired, of course, but still that's a little bit difficult to interpret. It was Tennyson, that great poet, who said, the greatest poem, Job is the greatest poem, ancient or modern. Uh, Job is poetry, and it is old poetry. I don't know about you men, but when my wife comes to me and says, hey, I want you to read this poem or this book of poetry, I try to do it, and then I always say the same thing to her. I don't get it. (laughs) You know, it's abstract. It's a language of the heart. It's not really a language of the head. So Job can be a difficult book. But then it's also a difficult book because it is an old book. Uh, as in maybe 3,500, 4,000 years old. Think about that. 
one of the oldest books written in the Bible. It goes back to the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thirdly, it's a difficult book because it is a long book, as in 42 chapters long. It's made up of all of these speeches between Job's three friends and then his responses to them. And so it's easy to get bogged down when you're reading through the book of Job. The expositor's Bible commentary says this, it is more, pla- it is more difficult in places than any other part of the Old Testament. Most of the preaching we have heard from the book of Job comes from chapters 1, 2, or 42, and then from a few verses that are interspersed in between. Today I'm going to take you through the book and we're going to look at several different passages as I share with you some life lessons from the book of Job. The first lesson I want to share with you today is this, learn, friend, learn to count your blessings in this life. Now we're going to see this as I begin reading in chapter 1 in the first several verses. Follow along as I read. Now, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and he was upright, one who feared God and he turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters, and he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. The first thing that comes to mind when we think about Job is his suffering. While Job suffered as much or more than anyone else, except for our Lord Jesus Christ, yet for most of his life, he was the recipient of an abundance of God's blessings. He lived and he enjoyed life for probably five decades before he ever went through that testing. And when God restored his, his uh, losses, he was given an extended time of life. And so the point that I'm making is that the majority of his life was filled with an extraordinary number of blessings from God. When you are going through hardship in your life, I have a little exercise for you. If you would, take out your, uh, get into your uh, photo gallery and start scrolling through that. And you are going to find there that you are a very blessed person as you look at all of those special times that you have experienced in your life. Now, there are two chapters in Job that really shed light on the blessings that this man experienced. That would be chapter 1 and chapter 29. You need to take some time and spend in chapter 29. In these chapters, we see that he especially enjoyed, first of all, God's presence in his life. Let's turn there for a moment, if you would, to chapter 29. I'm reading from verse number 5. As he reminisced to a different stage of his life, he talked about the time when the Almighty was yet with me and when my children were all around me. Talk about the blessings of the presence of the Lord. And he mentions a couple of examples here of God's presence. In verse number 3, he talks about the time when God's light shone upon his head. He was like in the spotlight, in God's spotlight, and he enjoyed God's presence. David, the psalmist, spoke with the same language when he said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
And then in verse number four, he said this, I was in my prime when the friendship or the secret of God was upon my tent or upon my life. In the Old English translation, you have there, instead of the word friendship, you have the word secret. He said, when the secret of God was upon my life. And I wanted to know more about that word, and it speaks of a close company of friends and the resulting confidentiality and intimacy that you have with your closest friends. We talk about Abraham being a friend of God. I tell you, Job was a friend of God. He enjoyed and experienced God's presence in his life. That's one of life's great blessings that we receive. But he also experienced God's protection as well. Verse number two. Oh, that I were in the months of old as in the days when God watched over me. He had experienced by this time in his life perhaps five decades of good health. When he died, the Bible tells us that he was old and he was full of days. He lived an exceptionally long life. For us, when our health gets bad, it's easy to forget the years of good health, the unexpected recoveries that we've had, those successful surgeries that we've been through, the close calls, the near misses. In chapter 1, verse number 10, Satan suggested that God had hedged Job in. And the truth of the matter is, every one of us here has experienced the presence and the protection of God in that way, as he has also put a hedge around us. The protection of God is one of his greatest blessings. Learn to count your blessings. When you're going through hardship in this life, learn to count your blessings. Notice thirdly, he was blessed with position in his life. In chapter 29 and verse number 7, Reminiscing again, he said, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, he was a leader in his community. He had a position. When Job spoke, people listened, verse number 10. Today we would call him an influencer, not a social media influencer, but he was an influencer. Job held the respect of both young and old, verse number 8. He also had the final say every time a decision was rendered, verse number 22. In the poetic language of the book, in verse number 25, it is said that Job was living his life just like a king. The Bible lumps him together with some other righteous men in Scripture. Ezekiel said this, he, in a, he listed a trio of righteous men, and he mentioned Daniel and Noah and Job, that's good company to be in, right? That's our man Job. The fourth blessing was that he was in a position to be able to actually help others in life. And so I call this Job's philanthropy. Look at verse number 12, if you would, of chapter 29. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. Now we expect that out of the wealthy right? I mean, we expect people that have been blessed financially to then be charitable and to reach out and help others through compassion. In verse number 15, it tells us that he was eyes to the blind. 
He was feet to the lame and he was father to the poor. Job did all of these things. And again, he was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, if you were to look up today who the um, wealthiest Americans are, they would be listed in this order for the top five. It would begin with Jeff Bezos and then Elon Musk and Bill Gates. And then after that, Mark Zuckerberg and then the old guy Warren Buffett after that. As you think about that, Job would have been in that kind of company today. Uh, He was, again, the greatest of all the people of the East. I mean, he probably would have financed his own rocket ship and blasted off into space like some of these other guys did this summer. The guy was rich, I'm telling you. He was living in a time when wealth was, uh, was counted or measured in livestock, and he had more than anyone else, 10,000 animals. This assumes vast land holdings and a large workforce. Speaking poetically, he said this in verse number 6. It is one of my favorite verses in chapter 29. He said this, When my steps were washed with butter. That's easy street, okay? This man was living on easy street. He was like a tree planted by the river of water. Whatever he did prospered. Psalm 1. Now we all equate the book of Job with suffering. And while it is true once again that uh, the book is much about that topic. Remember that the majority of his life was marked by great blessings. We tend to do the same thing. We focus or dwell on the hardships of life and we forget all about God's blessings. There's a song that we typically sing around Thanksgiving called Count Your Blessings. But one of the things we forget is how that old hymn begins. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed and you are discouraged thinking all is lost. It is then, friend, that you learn to count your blessings. I've read and reread the book of Job, and I'm reminded that the totality of this man's suffering paled in comparison to the numerous blessings of God in his life. And I ask you today, where's your focus? Is it on your hardships and struggles, or is it on the blessings of God in your life? A second lesson we need to learn from the book of Job is this. There is always something going on behind the scenes. I want you to look back at verse number chapter 1 with me. And in verse number 6, I read these words. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Ah, and Satan also came among them. As you read this book, you quickly realize that neither Job nor his so-called friends had any idea what was taking place behind the scenes. Job was the topic of discussion at a celestial council meeting where the course of events on earth was being determined. Job only knew that one day he was on top of the world, and after this quick 24-hour period... Everything in his life came crashing down. And verse 6 begins this way. Now, there was a day. You know, most of us here have experienced a day like that in our lives, right? 
You know, for my mother, she was a 42-year-old pastor's wife living in Peoria. And one cold, December, snowy day, surprisingly, there was a knock at the door. And when she answered the door, it was the county coroner. Now, that was a day. Within minutes, the knock came on the door, the classroom door, at Richwoods High School in Peoria, and I was in a class, and I just remember the student hall monitor passing a note to my teacher, who then took it and looked at the note with a somber look and gave it to me and said, you need to go to the office. We've all had a day like that, haven't we? A day that we never expected when it seems like our whole world is falling apart. At that time, Job only knew his life was great. And then it changed in a moment. What he didn't know was what was going on behind the scenes. A pastor by the name of Dave Early said this, God and Satan are locked in a cosmic battle for loyalty and allegiance. And often we're the battleground. The scene unfolding in chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, and then again in chapter 2, verses, verses 1 through 6, is one that Job was completely oblivious to. It's been described as a heavenly cabinet meeting or as a session of the council of God. Present at that meeting was the sovereign Lord of the universe, but also there were created spiritual beings, good and evil. And the stakes were high as Satan sought permission to go after one of God's choice servants. There's always something going on behind the scenes. C.S. Lewis put it this way, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and then counterclaimed by Satan. Job had no idea that this council was convening on that day and that he was on the agenda. All he knew is that life was going really well and then the bottom fell out. Behind the scenes, our sovereign God is at work, but so too is Satan. Tony Evans said this, It's hard enough to fight an enemy you can see. It's much more difficult to fight an enemy that you cannot see. Now, in Scripture, we learn that Satan tempted David to number Israel. He tempted Judas to betray Jesus and Peter to deny Jesus. Satan wreaks havoc in our lives as he distorts and he destroys, as he copies, as he confuses, as he kills and as he steals. steals. He tempts and he lies and he perverts. He prompts criminal activities, wars, genocide. Abuse, addictions, human trafficking, terrorism. He's the destroyer. Lutzer put it this way, no matter how many pleasures Satan offers you, his ultimate intention is to ruin you. Your destruction is his highest priority. But remember this, friend. While Satan is powerful, he is not all-powerful. In Job chapter 1, verse 12, God told Satan concerning Job, All that he has is within your power, but on him, only against him, do not stretch out your hand. Chapter 2, verse number 6, God said, Behold, now he is in your hand, only spare his life. God was still in control. An old hymn writer by the name of Horatio Spafford 
suffered great losses himself. And he wrote these words, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. And then it was followed by these words, It is well with my soul. Luther, also writing a hymn, spoke of Satan when he said, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word from God, one little word shall fell him. I want you to see a third lesson that we find from the book of Job. And that is, there is a common need of every human heart. I'm in chapter 9, and I'm looking at verse number 33. And here, Job had been attacked by his so-called friends. He had been, there had been so many accusations thrown against him. He wanted to present his case before God. But he knew as a human, as a sinful human being, he really had no standing to be in God's presence. And so he cried out in chapter 9 and verse number 33, Is there no arbiter, is there no arbitrator between us who might lay his hand on on us both? Another translation says, If only there were a mediator who could bring us together. One commentator has called this verse the unconscious cry of every heart. Now, you don't have to attend or observe many sporting events to find out who the least popular person is involved in the game or the match. It's always the, uh, the official, right? It's the umpire or it's the referee, but no one wants to compete without that third party, without that, without that go-between. For hundreds of years, people have recognized this. And back in England in the 1500s, they had a term called daysman. Daysman. It's found in some old translations of the Bible. And it simply meant to fix a day for a hearing or a cause. And so the daysman was the one who would give you your day in court. In ancient Israel, going back even further, the word meant to be right or to decide. And that's the word we have, this arbiter or arbitrator here. So again, much of Job consists of all of these accusations being made against Job by his so-called friends. Today we might call those frenemies instead of friends. But in chapter 1 we find that Job was called a righteous man. He wasn't perfect, but the Bible tells us that he was a true believer, that he was walking with God and living for Him. Job was a good man. And then one day he lost everything that meant anything to him. He plunged into a deep depression. And this formerly strong and stable believer began to waver and he began to doubt. And it was in that setting that he revealed the need, oh, if I just had someone, I need that third party. Now, by this time in the book of Job, we realize that he felt like his trials were just unbearable. We see that in chapter 6. 
He said, my grief, if it were weighed, would be heavier than the sand of the sea. And then again, not only did he feel this heavy weight in his life, but in addition to that, he felt like he had been unfairly targeted by God. Because it says in chapter 6 and verse 4, the arrows, the arrows of the Almighty, they're within me. Chapter 7 and verse number 20, God had made him, he felt like God had made him his mark or his target. And so Job felt a sense of separation from God. And I'm going to read a verse to you in chapter 9 and verse 11. And I ask you, have you ever felt like Job did? Listen to the verse. Speaking of God, Job said, Behold, he passes me by and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. I think most of us have been in a position like that at some time in our lives. In our heads, we still believe in God's omnipresence, but in our hearts, we don't really feel his presence. The psalmist expressed a similar sentiment in chapter 89 and verse number 4, where he cried out, How long, Lord? How long will you hide yourself? Forever? Well, Job was not. He was not guilty as charged by his friends, but he still felt that same separation from God that we all feel. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, we read, But your iniquities... Your sins have separated between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you that he will not hear. That's when Job cried out, oh, that I had a mediator. In football, there is a new rule is called targeting. For (laughs) you older guys in here, you remember that was called a good play in the past. But if there's a person in a defenseless position like the quarterback going back to pass or a receiver going up to catch the ball and a defensive player strikes them with the crown of their helmet and and targets them, then that person is ejected from the game for that illegal targeting. That's what Job felt like. He felt like he was the target of God. Have you ever been involved in mediation? Probably a few of you have. And so there's the plaintiff and there's the defendant and the judge or the court orders mediation, this third party to sit down with both. And it's done in a conference room or sometimes it's over a conference call or a Zoom meeting nowadays. And and this mediation takes place and this person is supposed to be uh, neutral and they're supposed to help both parties come to an agreement. Job felt this separation from God And he knew, he knew that in pleading his case before the Lord, if he ever had that opportunity, it would be so difficult. And he said in chapter 9, verse 32, For he, God, he's not a man as I am, that I might answer him, and that we should come to trial together. He felt as we all have felt. I need an arbitrator. I need a mediator. One who can lay His hands on both of us, the verse says. Now picture with me just for a moment a boxing match. And right before it begins, you have the two fighters. And you know how they do. They they get toe-to-toe and face-to-face. And if looks could kill, (laughs) one of them would be dead right then. But there's that mediator, that 
that umpire who's in between that referee and he has his hands on both of them. And then after the fight is over, he still has his hands on both of them. And the ring announcer says, and the winner is... And they raise that hand and there's that one that goes between. And that's what Job was asking for. He felt the need that we've all felt. I need a mediator. Spurgeon, that great British preacher, preached a sermon on this verse once. And he called it the great arbitration case. But to find the solution to this need, you have to go to the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 5, it tells us there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is our go-between. Job knew that he was at a disadvantage, but he still wanted to plead his case before the Lord, but he felt like they were so far apart. You see, folks, God's standard is holiness, and it is righteousness, and it is sinlessness, and that is why we have that need. In, Job, in chapter 1, Job was still a sinner like every one of us. The work of Christ has been explained in this way. There's a great gulf or a great chasm that exists between eternity, between God and humanity. And to be of any use... Uh, a bridge that spans a great chasm or even a river. It has to be anchored securely on each side. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He has bridged that chasm that separates God from man with one foot planted in eternity as, the, as God and then the other planted in uh, the temporal on earth as the Son of Man. It is through Christ that we now come to God. The mediator. Now let me give you another life lesson. And I think this is the hardest one so far. It's found in chapter 23 and verse number 10. If you'd like to turn there with me. Job said, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, tested me, I shall come out as gold. Now during times of hardship in our lives and suffering, confusion always begins to set in and our thinking becomes distorted. Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 23. He said, Behold, I go forward and he, God, is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not See him. Although God is omnipresent and Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us, and though the Holy Spirit indwells us, and though we have boldness and access through faith in him, Ephesians 3.12, sometimes it just doesn't feel like it. We feel distant and we feel separated from God. I don't know if you've ever been in a corn maze. Well, you live in Illinois or Iowa, you practically live in a corn maze, okay? Carol and I were traveling with a couple of our grandkids last summer. She thought it would be great if we stopped and um, took a tour of a dairy farm. And at the dairy farm, there were two things. Uh, there were uh, three things. There were, you know, there was the barn with the cows and then there was the ice cream shop. And that's what I was interested in. And Carol wanted to take the kids to the corn maze. So we ended up in the corn maze and everything was a lot of fun 
until we came to a dead end. Five times. By then I'd had enough. All I could think of was ice cream at that point. So finally I kind of uh, looked upward, uh, saw where the sun was at, uh, figured out the westerly direction, because that's where the ice cream store was. I said, come on kids. And so like in field of, like, in field of dreams like fashion, we started making our way through the corn stalks and finally broke out into the open where was the ice cream. It's what life's like sometimes, right? Just, no matter where you turn, you, you just can't see Him. You can't see God. But that's when you have to look up. You have to look up. Here in this passage, we read about God's presence, but we also read about God's purpose. And in 2310, when He has tested me, we see the purpose. I will come forth as gold. Every pastor and all the pastors and staff at this church know that we all spend a lot of time in hospitals and nursing homes, funeral homes, jails, mental health facilities, rehab facilities. Sometimes we go to the scene of an accident and that's when we hear, or perhaps even we have asked these questions, why? How? What did I do wrong? Or as my friend has said on a couple occasions recently, has God got it out for me? In Scripture, we read about the refiner's fire. Psalm 66 and verse 10, For you, O God, have tested us, and you have tried us as silver is tried. Or what about this one in Isaiah 48 and verse number 10? Behold, God said, I have refined you, I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. The Apostle Peter in the New Testament wrote these words to those who were being persecuted. He said, for a season, for a season, you are in heaviness through manifold trials, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold. Now, I grew up in Illinois where there are supposed to be four seasons. Now I live in Alabama where we have two. We have summer and we have still summer. But you know, seasons vary in life too, seasons of suffering. And for one person, their season is for a few weeks and for another months and for another years. And for some, a few, there's suffering that takes place for a lifetime. Tony is a friend of ours living in Tennessee. 25 years ago, as a young girl, a young wife, she was involved in a horrific traffic crash, car crash, right in front of our church, 10 minutes before the church service started that night. She ended up in the hospital and in a coma. And this is the only time I've experienced this in my life, but I was at the bedside when she came out of the coma and spoke her first words. She has been dependent upon a wheelchair for mobility now for over 25 years. I didn't know she was watching our services and my sermons on Job online. But she wrote me these words in a text the other day. Dear Pastor, I'm so thankful for this whole series on the life of Job. I deeply connected with the points in your sermon yesterday. We don't know the whole story 
And that there will be difficult, listen, seasons here. But that we should always look to Him with hope knowing that He is with us and He is in control. He is fully aware of everything. And He has a purpose for everything in our lives. And we can depend on Him to help us. He is always with us. Tony. There's someone who's been through the fire. And she gets it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through the literal fire, but we will go through the refiner's fire. That's a fire with a purpose. A fifth lesson, and the greatest lesson in the book of Job is found in chapter 19 and verse number 25. If you have it with me, turn with me for just a moment. Chapter 19 and verse number 25 Job cried out, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Three quick thoughts. Life is short. In Job we read that life is like a weaver's shuttle. It is like, um, it is like the wind. It is like a cloud. It is like a runner. It is like a ship that passes on the horizon. It is like an eagle descending to its prey. It's like a flower. It's like a shadow. Life is short. But we also find that life is hard. Take some time and read through chapter 16. Because in Job's suffering, you'll see some words that are similar even to the words that you find in some of the Messianic Psalms in reference to the coming Messiah. You will see words like people that were gaping upon or their mouths were hanging open as they watched the suffering of one. In Psalm 16, we read words or these ideas. Job had been wearied and worn. He was smitten and bitten. He was slapped around, shaken up and set up. He was surrounded and he was shot at. He was spilled out and scorned, beaten down and stomped on and targeted and pierced and bloodied and vexed and broken down. And he was shamed and overthrown and trapped and fenced in. He was gaped at, choked and strangled. One day at lunch I was reading that list to Carol and she said, and he came up with all of that without Roger's thesaurus. <laughs> I tell you, life's short, life's hard, but there's hope. In chapter 14, in verse number 14 of Job, he asked the question that every human heart asked. And in that verse, he said, If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal would come. Now, renewal is an interesting word, and it's used another time in that same chapter in verse number, in verse number uh, 7, I believe. And it goes like this. Remember, this is poetry. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again. That's the same Hebrew word as renewal, translated renewal. Isn't that interesting? You've cleared a fence line before, what happens? It just comes back. But Job asks the question, if a person dies, will they live again? Oh yes, there is a resurrection. Job cried out, I know that my Redeemer lives, 
And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And then he said, I will see God. The word redeemer essentially means rescuer. And that word is used all through the Old Testament. It is used in connection to the close relative that would buy back the family land that had been taken away. The uh, the close relative who would pay for and buy back a family member who had been sold into slavery. Or to bring about justice when a family member had been harmed or married the widow of a family member to redeem her property. The Lord is our Redeemer. He is our Rescuer. That's the message today, folks. I know my Redeemer lives. And one day I'm going to see God. God's silence, remember, is not the same as His absence. Someone has said, don't doubt in the dark what God has told you in the light. Let me share with you this story that was shared with me just recently. In one culture there was a custom where when boys were uh, becoming men and they would have a rite of passage, the dads would take the boys, the 12-year-old boys at nighttime out into the the woods, out into the forest and and would blindfold them and, and tell their sons to sit down by a tree and if they could stay there, if they were brave enough to stay there all night with their blindfold on then they would be considered a man. Now, can you imagine And boys taking it off and running back into the village, no doubt. But if they made it through the night with all the eerie sounds and the leaves rustling and the sticks cracking and all that was going on, and they would take the blindfold off in the morning, they would see their father seated right next to them with his bow. He'd never left them. So sometimes you feel in this life like you're in this maze. And I tell you to look up. Or sometimes you feel like you've been left all alone and deserted. But he's right there. He always is. Job in his darkest days knew one thing. I know that my Redeemer lives. And one day I'm going to see God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. I've spoken with people here today already and even last evening who are in one of those seasons right now. You might be there yourself. I want to pray for you. As our heads are bowed together, let's just stand quietly for a moment. Let's stand to our feet. As our heads are bowed together, if you would say, Pastor, I... I need prayer. I'm in one of those seasons in my life where I so need to see God. I need to have hope. I need to understand. I need prayer. Just raise your hand wherever you're at. Yeah, yeah, yep. Always in any service, wherever God's people are gathered, there are always going to be those in that season. Most of us have been through it or will be going through it. But some are in it right now. Dear Father, help these that have raised their hands to know that they are not alone. If they feel like they cannot see you or sense your presence, make yourself known to them. Make yourself very real to them. Allow them to come forth out of this time as gold. Help them to see purpose and hope in the days ahead. For we ask this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen.
Amen. It's been a privilege for me to be here today to share God's word. I'll continue praying for you. Thank you. You're dismissed.